I'm Alan Barr, and this is Radio Free RPG. Hello, I'm Alan Barr, and welcome to Radio Free RPG. Today I'm joined by my guest, Brian Young. Brian is an author of fiction, both gaming-related and non-gaming-related, as well as a media commentator and general all-around literary gadabout. Hi, Brian. How are you today? I'm splendid. How about yourself? I am doing well. Brian is laughing at me because he has not experienced my, as we call it, NPR voice yet, and he was having a brief chuckle there. So, All right, Brian, let's talk about what you've done. So why don't you give us a rundown of what makes Brian Young, Brian Young? In a general sense or in the intersection between fiction and gaming? Because those are two both. huge different questions. Well, let's, let's do both. So let, I know, obviously I know you primarily as a writer from our connection there, yeah. but you also do quite a bit of other stuff. I know you've worked with Lucasfilm on Star Wars. Yeah, no, right now I'm having a lot of fun. Um, I've done a lot of bunches, a lot of different stuff in the Star Wars uh, realm, whether that's in the journalist space doing. I wrote for StarWars.com for a long time. I write for Star Wars Insider magazine. I cover Star Wars for other outlets right now. If you've picked up any of the tops movie trading cards that they do for Star Wars, if you turn those over and look at the backs, I've written a lot of those over the last few years. Okay. So that's that's some of the stuff I do. I also do a lot of filmmaking and and that sort of thing. That was my day job up until recently, until I've gone full-time artist. And I do documentaries and features and short films and things like that. And gaming is always something that's been very close to me, and so is being a fan of things. And that was how I got to step into... Um, working on the Robotech role-playing game. Sure. And uh, I didn't actually write any of the game mechanics. Like, I'm not a game mechanic person. I'm a game master. And so they brought me on because I was a fan of Robotech and know how to run games. So they asked me to break down the story for, you know, break down the story of the show to include for game masters who might want to run that stuff. And I wrote, tons of fiction for it sure so i just i kind of do a little bit of everything i like to say i'm a storyteller regardless of the medium because that's really what i like doing whether that's a story on a tabletop or a story in a novel format or a short story or film or whatever i just really like telling stories okay well that's wonderful so you also have worked on uh, BattleTech, the yeah. Catalyst game, mostly in the fiction side for materials adjacent to their war game and RPG, yes? Mostly, yeah. So I've done uh, a bunch of stuff. I've written two full-length novels for them, and I've done some other collections of novellas and things. If you take a look at their Alpha Strike box set, though, they asked me to write a novella of fiction that comes with the box, but all of the characters I included in the fiction, I got to write all the game cards for them. So you can play all those characters in the game. 
and uh, I think I've probably I've probably written a quarter of a million words of fiction for them. Wow. You know, it's it's a lot. I mean, That's half of that is just the one the one book. Uh, my most recent full length novel, A Question of Survival, is it's a big book. It's about 100,000 words. But yeah, I've been working with them to advance the universe and the story that the universe has been going. It's it's weird. Like Battletech, I was familiar with it. I'd played the video games and stuff, but I'd never played the tabletop. And uh, I didn't realize when I got sort of asked to step into that world, how much history in the fiction that world actually has. So it was quite a steep climb to figure out how to actually start creating in that universe. It's a immense universe with a lot of detail and nuance to it. Almost, almost impenetrable in some stages to a casual observer outside. And that's really one of the the tasks I took, like no one assigned me to do it, but that was something that I kind of took on myself is that I want to make sure that all the stuff I'm writing for Battletech for them is stuff that doesn't have that steep climb to get into that, that anybody who wants to check out a book by because just because it's for me or they're interested in stepping into the world is going to have that easy way in. I did an interview once with Max Allen Collins who he wrote Batman comics for ages. He writes all kinds of mystery stories. He's finishing up the Mickey Spillane books that were unpublished. Now he's just a huge, like Titan in the industry of writing generally. And I did an interview with him and he, he told me that, that he tried to, the, the, the advice he got when he was starting out was when he was writing comics to make sure that every comic book was, capable of being someone's first comic book, right? That they would have all of the context and knowledge they would need to step into the world from there. And when I'm working in IPs, whether it's, whether it's your stuff, which I've done a couple of stories in, or whether it's Battletech or Robotech, my charge personally is really to make sure that people can understand the universe without it feeling impenetrable or, or a, you know, an inner circle sort of club that they're not a part of. Right. So, I mean, and yet, as you brought up, you've written Welcome to Paradise, which was a Mechas and Monsters Evolved novella for my company, Gallon Night Games. Uh, yeah. You seem to have a thing for giant robots. That seems to be where, where I've gotten the most, where I didn't necessarily have <laughs> that. I just, I'm a big fan of that sort of stuff, whether it's in video giant games. Giant robots are very cool. It's hard not to be a big fan. Or- yeah. yeah, no, it's <laughs> it, it is cool stuff. And the fact that I can get paid to write about them is delightful to me. Right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there was a reason a giant robot game was my second project ever. So <laughs> it's hard not to love them. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. You brought up something I want to touch on. You said every fiction piece or comic in this case uh, should be some able to be somebody's entry point. Yeah. Now that to me as an RPG uh, publisher, that seems like an impossible task. There is no way for me to turn a supplemental splat book into someone's entry point because it usually doesn't have the core book, which would be the default entry point. Now, as somebody who is primarily a storyteller, I, cause I come at this from a rules perspective. If you hand me a book, the first thing I look at are the rules can I play out of this book? If no, it's not an entry point. 
But as a storyteller, how would you approach turning some a supplemental, like a setting book that goes adjacent to the core book or an adventure into somebody's first entry point? What would you process that like? So for me, one of the things, like I collect RPG books. I love RPG books. And it doesn't matter if I've played the system or not. Sure. The storytelling elements, even if the stats don't match whatever game I might be playing, I can go through and look at those storytelling elements and find things that I want to use for my game. I'm the sort, though, who I have I struggle with, like, printed story supplements. Okay. Right? Like, I... I struggle to, to run them. I don't struggle to buy them. Trust me, I don't struggle to buy them. But I struggle to to play them completely as written. Sure. I tend to go through them, read them, which feels like a very easy way to uh, be an entry point, even if I'm not okay. involved in the game, and sort of take out all the best stuff that I might want to use in my game and adapt it to my players. I think there's so much adaptation that goes on that any of those supplemental books okay. are valuable for somebody, even if they they don't have the core book regardless. Right. So, so if I were approaching that, it would just be to put the best story possible in there, regardless of sure. the mechanics around it. And it's interesting because as a publisher, my goal would be to get somebody buying into my rule set, not taking it and implying it to somebody else's game because I want them to stick inside my ecosystem. Right. And that's an interesting, an interesting, uh, angle to come at it from, and I'm going to be mulling over that one for a bit, I think. So, as somebody who collects RPGs, what are some of the ones that have had a big influence on you and your writing and storytelling? Naturally, my first RPG was the West End Games D6 Star Wars game, and I played the hell out of that. I still have shelves full of that, and that's helped me professionally too, since I write so much about Star Wars and so much of the Star Wars universe that we know is predicated on that RPG and all of the stuff that Bill Slavisak and all those other guys put together for that. Like the vocabulary of Star Wars was built in that RPG. So that one's very influential for me. All the Palladium books. Sure. Right? Like I thought it was it was really poetic for me to be able to get to work on the new version of the Robotech RPG because I still had all of the Palladium books on my shelf. Um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game was probably the most played amongst my friend group more than D and D tied maybe with star Wars, but like more than D and D we'd play middle earth role playing the, the, the role master, uh, yeah, the role master, Yes. version of that but that whole palladium ecosystem was something that that we got brought up on looking back at it now palladium doesn't feel like the most intuitive system and i realized how much we were like homebrewing the rules to make sense of them but i still can't think of anything more fun than than breaking down all the bioe of a mutant animal and making a character like that like even if you don't play the game, building a mutant animal is just fun. I have all of the uh, the After the Bomb books on my shelf, as well as several copies of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness. That uh, I quite like that game. It's definitely one that hits the table more than I, more than most people would probably think at my house. Yeah, no, and it's it's. 
I, I feel like there's actually sort of like a missing hole in role playing right now because, you know, Palladium lost the Turtles license. They lost the the Robotech license and and the Turtles games that have come out since Palladium, I don't think come at it from the same direction. Sure. And uh, I feel like, yeah, no, I just I really love that game. It's As so a... fun. I've got. Mutants a, Down Under and Transdimensional okay. are two of yes. like the best books ever, and I just still flip through them. Uh, as a note for listeners, the After the Bomb Deluxe hardcover edition that Palladium has on their website does contain the original printing of both the core Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles RPG as well as the GM screen adventure in the back of it in full. So you get the new book and you get a reprint of the original. Does it have a lot of the like TMNT specific stuff stripped out of it though? No. Oh, it's a straight reprint. It's all there. Cool. I'm yeah, going to have so to get one of those. I, now that I've said this, I don't know if I'm going to get them in trouble. So rush out and buy it. But uh, yes, I ordered a copy just for myself and I was pleased to find that at the back. So, <laughs> all right. So, oh man, I love that game. Eric Wujic's work in the industry was, I, I think he's underappreciated for how monolithically influential his work was to a lot of people in that era. Yeah. Between Amber Diceless, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and all the stuff he was doing around Palladium. Yeah. He really was making a big impact. Yeah. So you like playing games. You like writing fiction for games. What is it like? to adapt a fiction that comes primarily from a gaming space into a literary sense. Unlike adapting Star Wars is different in some senses, I would say, because Star Wars is governed by a core committee who kind of oversees the universe and maintains a level of continuity or canonical uh, foundational material, right? Whereas a lot of gaming space things like uh, Battletech or Robotech, well, they have a core material. The gamers are so used to iterating upon that to make it their own at their home table that you are sort of selling to an audience who is used to being at least partially the author of the medium. And how, do, how does that make you approach your work? So with Battletech specifically, um, why don't we start with Robotech, actually? Robotech's a little easier. Okay. So the way I approached Robotech is, is for the Robotech RPG, I was tasked with creating all the scenarios for GMs based okay. on the episodes. Each episode, with a few exceptions, across season one, and then the book for season two should be coming out. Season two and three should be coming out this year. And I did all the scenarios for those as well. I approached it with like, if you want to play the episode, if you want to place your characters in this episode, here are the things that I think make this episode tick that might be interesting for your characters. And then I would create fiction around these moments to support those ideas or to give players and gamers ideas about where they could take their game. And Robotech is, is, a little different in that where the fiction I was writing is stuff that is really built to raise ideas, right? Mm -hmm. To, to create ideas and to spur ideas, you know, speaking of 
the the old Palladium books, right? Like some of my favorite things in the Turtles books were the comics that they had in there of the stories where it was like, wait a second, we can play things like this Halloween party, right? Or or things like that. Like y- you can see immediately like one of the Turtles dressed up as an H.R. Giger alien because it's so like imprinted in your memory in that, that comic is, in the book. That is a great episode of the animated cartoon with the magic meatballs that turned them into monsters. Yeah. My, my wife was shocked when I watched that the other day and could still quote it line for line. <laughs> I don't think she yeah. realized how much we watched. As kids. Yeah. But with, but, and so it was also to kind of use the fiction mm-hmm. to give character, or give players ideas of what the inner lives of characters might be like. Okay. But Robotech, I had to create all the fiction that would that would be contained in the book itself, in the rules. Mm-hmm. And that's like half the book with Battletech. There is a very long uh, it, it, it's more like Star Wars than that, okay. right? Where there is a large continuity and it's very meticulously plotted by a committee. I mean, I I can't say much about what we discussed, but right. just a couple months ago, I was invited with a number of other writers to go to uh, Seattle to plan the next few years of the overarching narrative of Battletech. And it was a lot of fun. And part of what we held was where can players find somewhere to play, right? Like where are these places that players can find? And that's a, a lot of my philosophy is like, where can I create cracks for players? Where can I create ideas that if players want to jump in on, on similar ideas, they can do so. But I still think with, with role-playing games like Battletech or like Star Wars, they understand that there's the canon that runs in this direction, mm-hmm. but I can take all my stuff in that direction if I want to. Sure. But the other, the, the other interesting element of it, though, is to make it feel as though I'm respecting the rules or respecting things that they can do in the rules. Like if I were to, if I were to have the mechs do things that they can't accomplish in the rules, it might frustrate those core readers. But in some cases with Battletech, I'm told that like half the readers don't play the game and half the gamers don't read the books. So it's like, how do I make it interesting for the people who don't play the game? how do I make it understandable to people who don't play the game? And how do I make the game elements feel accurate and true to the, their experience? So part of that is playing. Part of that is, is going through the rules and figuring out what's possible. And part of it is getting, I mean, battle tech is like exhausting and how much, how many mechs there are and how many different loadouts to mechs there are and which factions might use which mechs and making sure I get all that right is important it's not always something i do get right and that's why there's a fact check team but uh you know it's i imagine that's daunting there was a lot of data there to sift through i'm often impressed you know i will see things in for example the mandalorian they had one of the troop transports that had first debuted in a western games book yeah and it never really showed up again outside of that and they just had it in the background going by and I'm sure that was the work of uh, Pablo Hildago, who came up through Weston Games into Lucasfilm as sort of their uh, 
what would you, he's their story his, manager. His title, I think is a uh, creative, like creative executive or something like that. It's responsible for maintaining sort of the lore and the canon and ensuring all these pieces fit. I think Pablo's job has shifted a little bit and don't quote me on this, but I know we're being recorded, but I think (laughs) a lot of what he does now is kind of sits with the creatives and says, here's how you can leverage what we've already got. Sure. Right. Like I know then create a new planet. This one is really unused and it already fits and exists. Let's just use this. That's how we got Sagarera and Rogue One, right? Is okay. He was sitting there with the the writers, and they were going, "We need this real, like, mm-hmm. like Che Guevara sort of character." And he's like, "Well, we kind of have one, and here he is from the Clone Wars TV series, and here's how you could use him, and here's how you could change him." And they're like, "This is perfect," and they plucked right. they plucked him out of the cartoon and put him right in the movie, and and it creates that interconnection. Sure. And he's really good at that. And Battletech, had, like all of these big franchises have people that are really good at that. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> yes. It, that You mentioned the cracks in the space for gamers. And that is something that I think the Western games are PG for Star Wars into great effect with books like Lords of the Expanse, right? Which is this fantastic new area to explore that has a very... Star Wars, but still distinct from the core Star Wars feel to it. Um, But as Star Wars has grown bigger, that is a little bit harder to produce because there's already so much to work with. And there is a expectation of the familiar to a degree, I think, which can be good and bad because it can make the universe feel small, but it also makes it feel accessible. But by contrast, when you wrote Welcome to Paradise for Mechas and Monsters Evolved, there is no default setting in that game. There is no established uh, canon other than the rule chassis that the game presents, because it presents a myriad of uh, settings to play in and experience. How, what was that like? Because you were functionally given a, 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 a writing assignment that said, make it feel like the game, and you can either use any of these settings that you want, or you can just make a new one. It it felt a little bit like i mean i if i mean obviously you've you've read it it feels it felt to me like the sort of game i'd want to play right and that's kind of how i approached it and i approached it like if i were game mastering this if i were in charge of this game what would i put what pieces would i put on the board okay. but to tell a really fun story sure and you know, it, it, I went through all of the scenarios and, and picked stuff that I thought I could work with. And again, it was that same feeling I find when I'm a game master going through the book, going where are the cracks I can slip into. Sure. But I wanted to make it feel like the game and, and the game is very much like you're going to get to, to punch some monsters and you're going to have really huge mechs but the kind of games I really like playing are all those sort of snarky, not, not that I like playing them, but that's what they all descend to that snarky sort of like group of people who are kind of good, but like bad enough that they'd try to pull one of these schemes. The lovable rogues. Yeah, exactly. The lovable rogues and uh, taking that and, and going like, how would I do Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but with giant mechs and monsters, that's really 
that that was that was really fun to do. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because when you pitched the uh, pitch to me, I immediately mentally likened it to the Brothers Grimm movie, but with mechas and monsters. Yeah, that's a great movie. I mean, Terry Gilliam, yes, does that in a in a, in a really great way. I really like that movie. But I mean, we all have we all have different touchstones for that. Right. But but if you go back looking at Butch and Sundance and the relationship between the two main characters, sure. you're going to see a lot of Butch and Sundance there. But th- I, I can see the Brothers Grimm now that you say that. Yeah, it's interesting because I own Butch and Sundance, and I've seen it a dozen times. I do not own the Brothers Grimm, and I've seen it once. But for some reason, <laughs> that was the reference my brain yeah. went to. Um, it's always interesting what sort of twigs those mental connections for us. Yeah. So you work a lot in established lore, but... Uh, what about sort of implicit or anti-canon settings? So, for example, Gallant Eye Games just released one of my games, which shocking, they released my game because I own the company. I can make them do that. <laughs> Called Shadows of a Dying Sun, and it's a dying earth genre role-playing game. But the game is explicitly anti-canon. So there are tables that allow you to generate world details, but they deliberately contradict with each other. And it's put upon the GM to sort of resolve that conflict when playing the game. So in a situation like that, as a storyteller, how do you approach that idea that that the pieces maybe don't fit together? So I kind of really like that. One of my favorite things to do, part of the reason I like Star Wars so much is that I love seeing those puzzles where I go, hey, that doesn't fit. Wait, how could that fit? And then reverse engineer reasons for it to fit. And I think that's what, writers and storytellers and game masters do really well. So um, that's kind of fun. My concern about if I were to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write a story in this universe that people are going to read would be worried that, that people would start taking that as the canon because it's the, the published fiction. But no, I really, I really enjoy working in those spaces and those contradictions and trying to come up with reasons to make that stuff work. And, and that's part of why, like I can't find plot holes in star Wars. There aren't any, right? Like there's a logical explanation for absolutely everything. And anytime anybody's tried to test me on that, I've come up with something and they go, okay, fine. I, I can vouch for this listeners as I've tried that. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've talked about, your writing. Now let's talk about your freelancing in the sense of as a freelancer, you work in multiple IPs that you have to keep distinct. Um, some of them might share common threads and some might not. For example, you finished a tiny supers related novella for me recently that shares well, no similarities to this giant robot thing you seem to have going on. Uh, probably yeah. felt, felt refreshing to maybe not do a big stompy robot for a minute. It was, it was <laughs> as a, as somebody writing in somebody else's universe, when you are approached by a publisher saying, I would like you to write XYZ in XYZ universe, what is the information you look for to get? You know, pitching you to write this novella was the first long form prose we'd commissioned. We'd done short form prose, you know, in our books, small chapters or whatever to kind of set the mood or the theme. But with this long form prose. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And I didn't really have a good grasp of what I was supposed to be presenting or asking or looking for. 
So what would you say you would expect to get from a publisher who had it together in that position? So I think you had it together just fine, actually. We we sat down, you gave me both books I needed that established the setting and the characters, and you gave me the taste you had in your mouth for the stories, the kind of stories that you wanted to tell. And I went back and I read a whole bunch of those comics. I mean, I'm a huge comics fan anyway. um, So that was no big stretch, but a list of a list of stuff that has a similar flavor and the source material is really, really all I needed. And I mean, I sent you a, a pitch and you were like, that's great. Let's go with that. And I worked really hard to make it feel like episode, even though you were reading prose to try to make it feel like issues of a comic. And, and that was, that was really all I needed. Right. Like, and, and I mean, I'll be honest, like it was harder to start writing for something like Battletech, not just because of the expanse of the canon, but because there's no solid answers about where to start to write. Like, every Battletech fan that you, you run into has a different idea of where you should start and where you're going to get the best sense of the universe. And it really depends on, I mean, I kind of got thrown in the deep end with my first Battletech novel because I was told I was going to be doing something in a certain era and I needed to focus on this particular faction. And then I got told, Oh no, 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 no. This faction that you've been researching in this bit of the world and this space um we're not going to do anything there we're going to move you forward 100 years or 75 years and you're going to be working with the jade falcons what do you know about the jade falcons and i'm like what's a jade falcon and so i had to start over with my learning curve all over again and uh it 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 was it was difficult that way because there's so many different flavors of battletech right like and and so when you're dealing with something like superheroes, like tiny supers, it has a very clear vision. You, you put in the book, like this is the feel the stories are supposed to have that you're telling. Like there's this feeling of hope that, that I want to imbue in all of these stories that you're going to be able to tell with this rule set. And, you know, I kind of leaned back on my, my Palladium heroes unlimited days too. Right being able to figure out like, and and you talked about when we, when we spoke this idea of like these young superhero teams and you gave me the team that you wanted me to work with and then reading them, reading all the data you gave me on them and then reading all the source material that inspired you and had been stuff that I'd read before and it had inspired me as well. Like I, I locked in, I think, I mean, I haven't heard otherwise, but I think I locked into what you were hoping for. I'm notorious for usually saying that's great. Thanks. And moving on. So I could do better at giving specific feedback, but I quite loved the the novella. I didn't have any concerns or issues. So, okay. (laughs) I, I am terse at the best of times. So I, uh, if I say that's great, thanks. That usually means I loved it. No notes. (laughs) Okay. Some of my artists have given me grief about that over the years. Because at a certain point, I have hit just started hitting the thumbs up button on Facebook when they sent me art. So I need to stop doing that. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, like, I, maybe that's something I really like it when I get some of that feedback to say, even even if it was like, like, I really love relationships with the editors where it's like, 
this is 90% great, but this 10% is going to, to change that. Or here's how I wish it could be fixed because those fixes are actually usually pretty easy. And okay. I well, like hearing what works and what doesn't. We haven't finished editing it yet. So now you're yeah. going to get notes. No, I appreciate that. I'm going to redline I, it. Here we go. It makes a better, it makes better material. It, it absolutely does. No. And it, it's interesting because I'm very comfortable in the RPG space, giving those kind of notes because that's where I spend all my time. But my skill set as sort of a prose editor is far weaker. If you were to send me the same story as like an adventure outline for tiny supers, I would be very adept at like, nope, this doesn't work. Nope. I, I see where you're going, but let's try this instead or something that would, fly off my brain. I wouldn't even think twice about it. But the minute you turn it into fiction, I, I freeze up and go, wait, hang on. So one, one tip for that is to think about the feedback of a reader and what's working and what doesn't is, is more helpful than actually saying, here's how you fix this. Right. Saying the ending didn't land for me. And here's the feeling I got doesn't take any expertise because the expertise is you as a human. And that's, and that's almost more helpful than, than more prescriptive sort of notes. Interesting. And that is not how I would ever approach an RPG adventure. If somebody submitted one to me, I would say, nope, the linear narrative here is broken. Here's what you need to do to address it. Here's where it breaks. Here's where we fix it. Right. Because that is, it has to be a skeletal framework that is handed off to somebody else to interpret. And so it needs to be as tight as possible. Yeah. Um, which I think is very interesting that they are very similar, but yet so different in how you have to approach the final product. Yeah. Well, because they're, they're being used for different things. All right. Exactly. right? Like prose is prose is entertainment as an, that's the end use for it. But a game module is the blueprint for someone having a really great night. Right. I'm, I'm fond of Caribbean, and I believe it was Robin Laws who said this, and if I'm wrong, correct me, um, but that RPGs are the only, or one of the only, mediums where the author is also the audience Yeah. at the same time. Um, you don't get that with video games or movies or comics, really, in the same way. And that's a different perspective to approach as we work in these spaces as creatives. So that's that's... First of all, that feedback was helpful, and I, I think it'll be helpful for people listening. I think that's that's a great way to stop and think as we work through this, because RPGs and fiction have been entwined since the days of you know Dragonlance or earlier through White Wolf and their vampire and other uh, World of Darkness fiction down to modern day Green Ronin's doing stuff. Gallanite Games has started doing stuff. You know, it, it has been, and I think will always be uh, hand in hand in the space to a degree. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree at all. Hey girls, stop. We've had quite a bit of snow here and the snowplow just went by and my dogs were listening fans of that experience for some reason, despite it happening every day for six months. Well, they, uh, they're just trying to protect you from the big, scary plow. Yes. Now I'll have to edit that entire chunk out. All right. <laughs> and let me just check the, I'm going to 
plug a timer in here so I know where's my notes. All right, so we were discussing, hang on, I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? Stuff, whatever, okay. So discussing this blending of storytelling, do you practice your stories as you tell, before you write them in playing RPGs? Do you kind of sit down and say, hey, we're gonna play and maybe I'll adapt some of that? Not really. One of the things, like, I went back and reread those early Dragonlance novels, and you can see the dice rolls and the GM railroading pretty clearly. The thing I use for inspiration in my role playing games is really allowing. I love being surprised by my players. I'm almost always the GM, I never get to be a player usually. I love being surprised by my players because I'll think of a situation and go, if I were a player, I'd go left. And then the players go, no, 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 I'm going right. And working through that and trying to figure out how to tell the story best in a way that's going to be fun for everybody with those right turns where I would have gone left has taught me. And every time I play, it teaches me so much about what I can do with my characters. So really the inspiration from the role playing games, it just sort of expands my horizons of what I feel like my fiction might be capable of. And okay. sometimes there might be moments I might use or, or, or things like that. But for the most part, you know, I never want somebody to read my book and go, Oh, I can see the dice rolls in the fiction. Okay. Do you, do you enjoy playing playing the games that you write in? Yeah, no, I've had a lot of fun in Battletech. Robotech has been a lot of fun. It's a really interesting system. It's not something I can play a whole ton. I feel like I wish I could play more. Part of my problem is, is that my role-playing group for the last 10 years has been my son and his friends. And they're all like 20, 21, 22 now. So they're all like, in college and too busy to play. So I don't get to play as much as I do anymore, oh, which sure. is the huge, which is the huge disadvantage. Like it was great. I was like, this is great. I just made my own role-playing group. Like I've got my kid and he brought his friends over and we play and it's great. But, uh, I don't get to play as much as I I'd like to anymore. And I need to find a group of adults sure. other than them because they're like in college and busy adults. Yeah. They're, they're all children. <laughs> we uh, we had a lot of fun. We went and we went. I took them. I had a press screening of the D and D movie, and okay. I took them to go see it with me. And it was it was a really great experience. Well, that's awesome. I imagine it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so we're closing in on time here. So I generally have a few questions I ask at the end here. Um, the first one is: Is there a question you've always wanted to be asked in an interview? And if so, what is it? And then I'm going to ask you. You know, it's. I really like talking about my. I really like talking about like other stuff that I've done, but people tend to focus on this stuff. But like. I don't know. There's all kinds of stories that I have that nobody ever gives me an opportunity to tee up, but. Well, tell us one right now. 
so I'll, how about I give you a few options and you can pick which one you want to use. Okay. That sounds great. Um, I built a spaceship in my mom's backyard. I impersonated a television crew at Sundance to promote a movie or uh, the time George Lucas heckled my interview. I would like to hear that third one. I think that sounds amazing. So yeah, this is the first time I ever met George Lucas and this was a really interesting time back when the clone wars was starting, no one was really covering it. And I don't know if you remember, but like 10, 15 years ago, websites didn't do reviews of every episode of TV the way they do now. Right. And, uh, I was working, I'd created a website called big shiny robot because I was writing for Huffington post, but they were like, I was able to sneak in a little bit of nerd stuff, but I really wanted to write about nerd stuff. So when the clone wars TV started, TV show started, I started reviewing every episode on big shiny robot and Lucasfilm noticed because I was the only one doing that. Mm-hmm. So for season two, they started approaching me and I, I got to do like interviews and they'd send me clips. But for season three, they invited me to Lucasfilm to come to the premiere at the Presidio. And there were three press people there total. It was me. It was Eric Goldman, who now runs fandom, but uh, was at IGN at the time. And and Cartoon Network's own camera crew was there. And that was it. And they had the huge red carpet with the step and repeat and everything. And so we got to talk to everybody. And two of the people that were there were... Seth Green and Matt Senreich, who do Robot Chicken. And at the time, they were developing what we now know as Star Wars Detours, which is still sort of a canceled project, I guess. But they were developing that actively. This is before Disney had bought them and sort of canceled that. And I was interviewing them and sort of asking them information about it. And they were kind of hemming and hawing and giving me some really funny answers. And all of a sudden, I hear over my shoulder don't listen to a word these guys say. And then this voice leans over to the, them and goes, don't tell this guy a thing. And I look over and that's George Lucas. And George Lucas just, he crashes the interview. He interrupts. He just starts making fun of Matt and Seth. He starts making fun of me. He's just having a grand old time laughing hysterically about all of this. And I'm not sure what, to do at this point, because this is the first time I've met George Lucas. Right. The first words George Lucas has ever said to me is don't listen to a word. These guys say in the middle of me on a red carpet interviewing Seth Green and Matt Senreich. So they finally, like, this is the last thing they, they, you know, sort of wave everybody along and say, okay, we're going to go into the screening now. And I was hanging out with the supervising effects director of the clone wars, a guy named Joel Aaron. And he and I were talking and we kind of go into the theater together and he's, we're talking about the show and what's going on. And then George Lucas and Seth green march in behind us, sit down right behind us. And then George Lucas proceeds to basically do an audio commentary the entire time of the season three premiere of clone wars. And I could not believe any of this was happening. I imagine. Yeah, no, like I was, I was after the screening, it was like there was cast crew, literally three members of the press. And then a theater full of like kids from like the local, like 
uh, Boys and Girls Club. And they'd given all of these kids lightsabers. And so at the end of the screening, I'm sort of backing away and all the kids have swarmed George Lucas and he's just signing lightsabers. And I'm literally backing away. Like, I don't want to like end this. I don't want to like stop looking at it, but I still feel like I need to go because it can't get better than this. And then the publicist that I work with, uh, a lovely woman called Tracy Canobio, and she's still there at Lucasfilm and she's amazing runs up to me and goes, Brian, you can't leave yet. Like, did you want to meet George? And I'm like, yeah. So we go around and, and I, I'm glad I have pictures of this. Cause I have no idea what I feel like we talked about Akira Kurosawa for about three minutes. As, as one should. Yeah. Well, I think I thanked him. It was very much like, thanks for star Wars because it brought me to all of this other stuff that, that I know you like. And, he seemed happy with that. And and I couldn't like, it was like, I couldn't imagine a better end of the night. And when I got to interview him later, like maybe a year later, maybe two years later, it was hard because they gave me the, you're not allowed to ask about star Wars. So I had 15 minutes to talk to George Lucas about anything but star Wars. So I started gearing all my questions in a way that might prompt him to, but and it worked, but no, it was, that was the most bizarre night of my life. Like you don't ever expect like to be interviewing somebody and then have George Lucas just come in and start like heckling you. Yeah. No, I would be shocked if that happened to me mostly because I don't go to star Wars events. So it'd yeah. be really surprising, but well, I didn't yeah. even know he was there either. Right. Like, so this was like, it was like doubly shocking because we're at the Presidio. Like we're at, Lucasfilm like but it's this weird press cast crew screening like you don't expect George Lucas to just be hanging around and then let alone just show up and start making fun of people yeah that's a great story I'm glad you shared that thank you it's weird I've I've done a lot of weird things I've had a weird life better than being boring yeah so do you have any questions for me? When are we going to do something else? Okay. okay. <laughs> well, you want to join one of my online RPGs so you can be a player? Maybe. All right. Maybe. Well, we can do that. Yeah, we need to do a new project. We we can talk about that. Man, that way to put me on the spot looking for work. I'll no, 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 great. no. It's no, fine. no. I put my feet to the fire. I'm okay with it. No, we should we should we should schedule another time to talk about it. We should. I do. I would love to. Uh, I would love to sort of get your feedback on Shadow of a Dying Sun. I think you'd have some insights that would be really interesting. So I'll shoot you a PDF okay. of that. But I'd love to talk about that. And uh, next time in U- I'm in Utah, we'll have to play a game. I uh, I was out there in October for a writers conference, um, and I ran an impromptu cave person RPG where they could only say the three words they knew. So they had to communicate with only those three words the whole game. <laughs> That's uh, I love those games that have those really weird constraints. I did a, a book I would, signing. I would let them draw a cave person art to communicate if they wanted to. I did a book signing. Maybe it was it was in December. Mm-hmm. And myself and two other authors, we had a GM come in and we played a game where we were all ourselves as authors playing a game 
So we were essentially bards and we, we each had one cantrip, but we could do no combat because it was us. And so we did this in front of an audience and it was so fun to just do this, this all bards and no combat nonsense in front of people. Yeah. Those, those can be very fun liberating experiences. Sometimes they can be very stressful. Oh yeah. But I mean, it's fun. I think some of my most successful games that I've run don't have combat. Oh no, no, no. Right? Combat is not required to make an RPG industry. No. RPG I interesting. Of, I think there's a lot of people who fall into that, that feel like if they're not having combat, then what are the players doing? But I swear some of the best sessions I've ever had never got anywhere near combat. I think it's because combat is the most visually understandable form of conflict for people to approach. Yeah. I would, I, as a person who loves action movies and fight scenes and I spent a lot of time working on that and studying choreography and things like that, it is a very easy to understand on a service level, but very difficult to attain mastery of sort of medium of communication. It's, it's interesting. I teach, I teach a lot of writing classes and I teach a class on dialogue. And one of the things that I tell my students, and I should probably talk to, to players more about is that everything, every word that passes through your character's lips is an action that's on par with a punch, right? right. Like it has to be as equally motivated as them punching somebody in the face why they're saying that is something that that is really important and so those those scenes of role play where characters are talking and interacting that way have as much excitement for me at least in what can happen as as a you know a round of fisticuffs absolutely I think I might have to have you back and we can talk about that topic I think we could probably do a whole episode on that easily Okay. All right. We'll set up a time. All right. Uh, Brian, if folks want to find you or support you online, what is the best way to do so? They can go to swankmotron.com, which is my, which is my, my writer website. So there's a shop there so you can buy signed copies of books and things like that. I've got a Patreon where I produce a short story every month. Uh, and that's at pa- patreon.com slash swankmotron. Uh, you can find me on just about any social media platform there is at Swankmotron. So Swankmotron is really the name of the, the game. If you Google Swankmotron or Brian Young, uh, you're going to get that stuff. Excellent. Well, Brian, thank you for coming on and sharing your insight and your stories with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a delight. Good. Folks, I'm Alan Barr, and this has been Radio Free RPG.